Well, let's um, begin with the word of faith. Our Lord, we come into your presence tonight conscious of the fact that we do not have any right to stand before you, that there's nothing in our lives that commends us to you, and that when we, in all honesty, examine our progress as your people, there is so much left to be desired. We know that in so many ways we are inconsistent and we let you down. We know that we fall short of your glory and that we sin day in and day out. And yet we want to thank you that you have given us good news, that you've given us your word, and that your word speaks comfort to our hearts and reassurance that though our salvation would surely be lost if it depended on us, that you will see to it that we are saved and that to the uttermost. We thank you for the precious promises of your word and ask that they would give us strength and encouragement tonight, that they would in fact make us more diligent to lay hold of that which you have promised, that we might, with the confidence given by your word, strive to show ourselves worthy of the grace that you've given us. We do pray that you would help us tonight then, that our hearts would be set at peace, and that we would be motivated to be more obedient, to demonstrate the character of Jesus Christ in our lives. We do thank you for our Savior as well. We thank you for the agonies that he endured on our behalf, that he came into this world that he was incarnate among men, though he was the sovereign creator of men, that he took upon himself our nature, and that he lived a life where he knew rejection, where he was disdained, and finally died. We thank you that he did all that for us, and that he rose powerfully from the dead, has now passed through the heavens, and is seated at your right hand, and there makes intercession for us continually. Father, we thank you for this ministry of our Savior as well and the reassurance it brings us. We thank you tonight for your Holy Spirit that has given us eyes that are enlightened to understand and see the truth of the Scriptures and understand them, make application of them to our lives. We thank you for the new life that we have in the Spirit. We thank you that we have been raised from the dead spiritually that we are born again, that we do have this new life because of your almighty power. We thank you that this spirit continues to sanctify us daily, progressively, making us more consecrated, preparing us for that ultimate day of glorification when we, even as our Savior Jesus Christ, will pass through the heavens and enter into your very throne room, there to live in mansions of glory with you forever. Lord, we thank you for all the many precious promises and the ministry of our Savior and of his Spirit, and ask that this night and this time of study together will be profitable to our spiritual ends and to your glory and the advance of your kingdom. So we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It has been a little while since we've studied the book of Hebrews, but we're going to resume that study tonight. We are in chapter 6, so please turn to Hebrews 6, and while you're doing that, I'll very briefly rehearse for you the argument of the book of Hebrews. 
Hebrews is written by a second generation Christian, uh, someone who spoke with authority, although was not an apostle, written to people uh, primarily of Jewish background, extraction, who were now being tempted to fall away from the Christian faith because of the persecution that was coming upon the church. The author of Hebrews is stressing the superiority of Jesus Christ over all that the Old Covenant had to offer, superiority of Christ over Old Covenant revelation and the prophets of old, the superiority of Jesus Christ over the priesthood of the Old Covenant, superiority of Jesus Christ over the covenant that was enjoyed then. All of these things are arguments laid in to um, encourage the people to stay strong in their Christian faith, indeed not just to be strong, but to grow, not to waver, but also to enhance their experience, to become more deeply committed to the Savior, more consistent in their walk. The author is very concerned that the people are not doing that, however, and so he lays in some very stern warnings about what will happen if they don't uh, get up off their cedars, as it were, spiritually, and get moving. At the end of chapter 5, he has said that He's wanted to go into the uh, superiority of Jesus Christ over Old Testament priests by pointing to the association of Christ with Melchizedek. But he says in verse 11 of chapter 5, I have many things to tell you about him, but they're hard of interpretation because you have become dull of hearing. At a time when you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the rudiments of the faith. You can't take the solid food that I would like to give you. You cannot be nourished by it because you are... Um, not exercise to discern good and evil. And so chapter 6 begins, and I'd like to read and comment real briefly on the opening verses, and then we'll start our detailed commentary tonight on verse 13. Chapter 6 begins, Wherefore, leaving the doctrine of the first principles of Christ, let us press on unto maturity. That's the theme I've been stressing. Press on to maturity. Don't be sluggish not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of teaching of baptisms and laying on of hands, resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. The fascinating thing is, many in the Christian church today don't have those doctrines down, but the author of Hebrews said, hey, those are ABCs. Don't lay that foundation again. Move on. You've got to get beyond that. Move on to perfection. Move on to maturity. It says, and this we will do if God permits. For as touching those who were once enlightened and tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Spirit and tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and then fell away, it is impossible to renew them again unto repentance, seeing they crucified themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to open shame. Of course, this passage is a very debated passage. Uh, we spent one whole evening looking just at these verses and drew the conclusion that what the author says is it is possible for a person to sin a sin unto death, to so apostatize from the faith, to so turn against all the spiritual privileges, that external spiritual privileges that have been enjoyed, all of the instruction and all the privilege that you unalterably have turned away from the faith. You have fallen away. You have apostatized. Now, this does not mean someone who was truly saved, lost their salvation. It does indicate, though, that some people who are in the very um, uh, grip of the church, intimate with the church, have seen the powers of the age to come and so forth, 
But even they can fall away and prove not to have been saved in the first place. And we uh, remember Matthew 7. And that's very helpful in understanding this. Jesus says that even those who have performed miracles on the day of judgment will say, Lord, Lord, and he'll say, I never knew you. They knew the powers of the age to come. They worked miracles that they were not born again. So the author has been talking about move on to maturity. Don't stagnate. And the way he reinforces that, he says, if you are stagnating, I warn you, maybe you're those who will fall away and also them so that you never turn around again. How does someone know whether they've sinned the sin unto death, whether they've committed the unpardonable sin of blasphemy against the Spirit? How do they know? How do you... Do you ever worry about that? I think I've related to some experiences with people who have told me that they get real nervous, you know? Sweaty palms and, you know, palpitations in the chest. They worry, maybe I've committed the unpardonable sin. But, of course, anyone who worries if they've done so hasn't done so. Because those who committed the unpardonable sin are so hardened against the gospel, they don't care. They turn away from it. And the very thought of it is either taken lightly or... They don't care. How do you know whether someone who has apparently fallen away from the faith has committed the unpardonable sin? You don't. And though it might satisfy our curiosity for me to offer you a, a, a mechanical way of determining whether someone, say, who's been excommunicated from the church or who once called themselves, uh, called himself or herself a Christian but now doesn't, I could give you a mechanical way of deciding whether they really have committed the unpardonable sin or not, but there's no way to know people's hearts. Those who persevere to the end will be saved. Conceivably, those that you know who have renounced the faith and been excommunicated will repent. That will show that they did not commit this sin. If they don't repent, it will show that they did. And so sometimes we just can't know about other people in this life where they stand. We don't know about anyone then we can know about ourselves apart from perseverance. Okay, let's move on. In verses 7 and 8, then a, a parable is given to drive home the point of this exhortation. For the land which has drunk the rain that comes off upon it and brings forth herbs meet for them, for whose sake it is also killed, receives blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, after all that privilege and preparation, it is rejected and nigh unto a curse, whose end is to be burned. So all these blessings have come upon you, you've known the gospel, you've been in the heart of the church, you have seen the powers of the age to come, you've taken in all this rain and so forth. If your life brings forth thorns and thistles, then you're near unto a curse, and the end will be that you will be burned. Of course, which is a subtle reason to hellfire. In verses 9 and 10, the author says he has confidence, however, that a genuine work of grace has taken place in this congregation. He says, But, beloved, we are persuaded better things of you, and things that accompany salvation, though we thus speak. For God is not unrighteous to forget your work and love which you showed toward his name, and that you ministered unto the saints, and still do minister. And we desire that each one of you may show the same diligence unto the fullness of hope, even to the end, that you be not sluggish. Okay, there's our theme again. Don't hold back. Don't be sluggish. Move on to maturity. Show diligence unto the fullness of hope, even to the end, 
he says, Be imitators of them who through faith and patience inherit the promises. And this is a very important theme in the book of Hebrews. Imitate those who went before you, who endured affliction, and in faith inherited the promises. So important is that that one whole chapter later will be given through illustrations to people who did that. What chapter am I talking about? Chapter 11, that's right. The Hall of Fame of Faith. Those who were promised something and in faith obeyed God even though they didn't receive it. And in faith conquered. And in faith performed mighty works. In faith endured to the end. However, in chapter 6, as we move on to verse 13 to get on to tonight's lesson, in chapter 6, the specific illustration is that of Abraham. How appropriate. Abraham, in particular, is singled out as an example of someone who knew patient faith and obedience. We need to uh, look at the similar words of Paul in Romans, the fourth chapter. And um, Scott, I'll ask you to read Romans 4, verses 18, 20, and 21. Romans 4, verses 18, 20, and 21. Who was this hope, believed in hope, and who might become the father of many nations, for he brought with his children, which I have seen here. 20 and 21. The stranger not that the father of God, the unbelief, but a strong faith to enjoy God, and being fully persuaded that what he had promised, he was able to also perform. Now, what virtue of Abraham's is being stressed in these verses, Scott? Well, that he was patient, but what word occurs uh, uh, over and over again? He, that's right, had faith, he believed God. He believed God despite all the outward appearances to the contrary, too. What is it that God promised Abraham? Okay? Multiply his seed. Okay, Abraham, I'm going to multiply your seed. God said that to Abraham when he was a young man, newly married, he had everything to look forward to, right? Wrong. Yeah. He said it to an old man. Not just that Abraham was old, his wife was old. Oh, it's not just that she was old, she was barren. I mean, this must have seemed absurd. An old man being told that his old wife who is barren is going to have a promised seed, and that Abraham's going to have so many children through that seed that it would be like the stars of the heaven and the sands of the sea. And yet, what does Paul say? Abraham became the father of the faithful, because he demonstrated confidence in God's word despite the contrary appearances. And so the book of Hebrews chooses a good illustration, doesn't it? When it wants to look at someone whose faith through faith and patience, inherited the promises. For when God made promise to Abraham, since he could swear by none greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely, blessing I will bless thee, and multiplying I will multiply thee. And thus, having patiently endured, he obtained the promise. Once again, there's our theme, having patiently endured in faith, he obtained the promise. For men swear by the greater, and in every dispute of theirs, the oath is final for confirmation. 
wherein God being minded to show more abundantly under the heirs of the promise, the immutability of his counsel interposed with an oath, that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we may have a strong encouragement to have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us, which we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and entering into that which is within the veil. Whether as a forerunner Jesus entered for us, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Um, I know that some of you will make fun of me for saying this because I say it so This is one of my favorite passages of Scripture. It really is. It has so much encouragement in it, so much beautiful theology. It's written so well. I, I wish we had more than just one evening to spend on it. But let me see if I can get through that much in the time that is remaining. Uh, Abraham has been taken as an example of someone who, through patience and faith, inherits the promises. Now, the author of Hebrews says that when God made a promise to Abraham, the syntax, by the way, of my translation says, when God made promise to Abraham, since he could swear by none greater, he swore by himself. That may be a little confusing. I think you can smooth it out, though remember that part of the sentence has been pushed up to the front of the, um, the declaration for emphasis. But what it's saying is, when God made promise to Abraham, he swore by himself, since he could swear by nothing greater. The point is, God made a promise, and he swore to it. He gave an oath. Amazingly, we read that God himself swore an oath to Abraham. What does it mean to swear an oath? You've had a sermon on this recently. That's another way of describing the kind of oath that men took in that day and which God took to Abraham. Okay, he gave his word, and what's it backed by? Remember the word malediction? His what? Uh, well, yeah, his life was at stake in a sense here. Um, a self-maledictrio. Can you explain that long mouthful of the description? That's right. Malediction. Um, diction is a word that is spoken. Okay, as in dictionary, or your diction is good tonight, something like that. Okay, maledictions then from malevolence and so forth means a bad word. Self-malediction is to speak a bad word about yourself. And a self-maledictory oath then is to give a promise, the sanction of which is, if I don't keep this, let a certain evil, let a curse come upon me. So it's the promise that you will be cursed if you don't keep your word. Now when you think about that, you see the amazing thing that we're being told here. God not only gave a promise to Abraham, God said, I'll curse myself if I don't keep this word. Let the curse of the covenant, let death come upon me if I don't see to it that this promise is kept. But when God made promise to Abraham, he swore by himself 
since he could swear by none greater. Although God himself is the source and God is the very standard of all that is trustworthy and all that is true, God took an oath to be true. God is the highest standard of truth and trustworthiness. And God wants to make a promise. What's he going to measure the trustworthiness of his promise by? Well, the verse tells you, there isn't any higher than God. There is no standard. Now, this is, um, there are some in the room who will be aware of this. You see, this is an ancient philosophical problem, too. How do you evaluate God? Or in a pagan context, the question would be, God, God. But how would you evaluate God? What is your concept of good or beauty or truth or any other noble feature? Is good only what God says it is? Or is God good according to some standard that's even higher than him? Well, the Christian doesn't have that problem because we say good is what God says it is because what God says reflects his own character. There isn't anything higher than God by which he can be measured or evaluated the God judgment. And that's what we're being taught here. This is one of the most important verses philosophically in all the Bible in a sense. There is nothing greater than God. So God can't be measured by anything outside himself. If God's going to take an oath then, his oath has got to be taken according to himself. He could swear only by himself. You know that the whole concept of Christianity, the whole worldview that we call Christianity, would be completely different if this verse said something other. If this verse said, well, then God swore by the faith. A God swore by the platonic form of goodness. But God can't swear by anything other than himself, because the minute God does that, there would be a confession that he is not sovereign, that he's not uppermost, that he is in some way to be put under a higher standard and measured according to it. Well, that, so, I mean, this is a very important verse that way, philosophically, theologically. But I also want you to think about what this means about the character of God. Human beings, when we are in a position of authority, where our word should be taken because it's our word, are not inclined to offer to people who have doubts about us reassurance. Am I being too abstract? My children should believe me because I'm their father. I'm their superior. I'm their authority. When I tell them something, or I promise them something, and they have doubts, the human tendency is to be offended by that, maybe to be irritated by that. Take it out of a family context, because we may be soft hearted for our children. If you're at work and you're a supervisor, and one of your underlings doubts your word, you don't tend to say, well, let me take an oath to reassure you. You tend to want to bring that person down in wrath. So who are you to challenge me? But here we have a case where Abraham's told something that, listen, nobody who has taken biology one in high school would believe. But this old man with a barren wife is going to have children. But God not only promises this, he says, I'll take an oath. 
and the oath will be a soft malediction. I'll curse myself. There is no one, no thing greater than God by which you could swear, because there isn't anything greater than God. And so God took the oath by himself. That is to say that God's word itself attests him. We hear that phraseology from time to time in our congregation and in Reformed circles, and I think because it's high-sounding and maybe kind of academic-sounding, people are friends, afraid to stop and say, well, now, wait a minute, what does that mean, self-attesting? Well, let me give you an illustration. Let's say Scott here gives testimony maybe in a court of law or before this group. And someone says, well, now, but what evidence do we have that Scott knows what he's talking about, that his word is reliable, that he's telling us the truth? And then Doug stands up and he says, I'll be a character witness for him. I will attest to the reliability of what Scott is saying. So Doug is attested to Scott's word. Of course, we could play a game and say, well, then why trust Doug? And then someone would stand up and attest to Doug's word. He was attested to Scott's word and so forth and so on. Who attests to God's word? John Warwick Montgomery? Do you feel a lot better about the promises of God and John Warwick Montgomery says he's done his research and, and you can rely on it because he's proven certain aspects of it? That's preposterous. And to me, there are days when I wonder, why do we even take this man seriously or his whole school of apologetics? Because we've got to find rational evidence of satisfying our own senses. I mean, that couldn't possibly verify the word of God. It's the other way around. And so this verse teaches us that God's word attests to itself. When God wants to back up his authority, he backs it up with his authority. You don't like that. You're giving evidence to yourself. That circular reasoning. Okay. Let me give you an analogy. There is something in Paris, France, called the standard meter. You know what the standard meter is? It's the meter that judges all other meters. And it's kept in an atmospherically controlled room under just the right lighting conditions and so forth. It is the ultimate standard of what a meter is. Now, we don't talk about meters very much because we're used to yardsticks and all that. But, I mean, you, you have a meter stick just like you do a yardstick. Now, meter sticks like yardsticks have to be made by some company, and they have machines that are calibrated to make them as close as possible, right? So you know there's slight variation, you know? For practical purposes, for government work, it's good enough. You know, you get a meter stick, okay? And these meter sticks not only have slight variations with the machines that make them from one company to the other are slightly uh, different in their calibration and all uh, conditions, just the width of the cutting blade changes with the um, the heat that's in the factory and so forth. So slight variations are there. Not only that, meter sticks get beat up. People use them to spank their children or, you know, to, to break into the house or to dust or whatever they do with meter sticks. And they get kind of nicked and, and distorted and people leave them out in the rain. And, am I making my point? Not every meter stick is exactly right. So now, if you want to know whether your particular meter stick is precisely a meter, there is something in Paris that's called the standard meter. 
And you take you leave your stick in, you put it up there, and of course you'd have to have something really fine to, to see it and to measure it. But you can find out just how close your stick is to the actual standard. But now the question comes up, how do you, um, how do you verify the standard needed? What if someone went in one day with one of their beat-up, old, frumpy, gnarled meter sticks and said, hey, this doesn't measure up. There's something wrong with your standard meter. People would laugh. They'd say, there can't be something wrong with the standard meter because the standard meter is the standard of all meters. That's why it's called the standard meter. So if there's a discrepancy, what we've decided is the discrepancy means you're wrong, we're right. Because this is the standard. Now, does that mean that the standard meter is not a meter long because you can't measure it by anything else? No. It means it is a meter long better than anything else that calls itself a meter long. But it also means the standard meter is self-attesting. It's the ultimate standard, and so there's nothing higher by which it can be measured. <clears throat> now, when people complain, God can't verify his own word, you need to point out to them, as nicely as you can, and as clearly as you can, something in your philosophical system that's going to be self-effective. I will accept, for the sake of our conversation, that you have not allowed that God is self-effective. But you need to realize the concept of self-attestation cannot be escaped. Something in your system is. It may be the laws of logic for you. It may be sense experience. It may be your grandmother's words. Some experts were. It may be all the encyclopedias in the world where they agree. But something to you cannot be challenged. Everyone has, finally, their standard meter by which they evaluate things. And for Christians, the standard meter is God's word. When God made promise to Abraham, since he could swear by none greater, he swore by himself. There's a lot packed into that verse, obviously. Now, let me ask you, when God took an oath added to his promise, did he add something to his trustworthiness? Did God's word become more true when he gave the promise and then backed it up with an oath? No, it can't become more true. It just was true, and there never should have been any question about it in the first place. So when God added the oath, you need to understand that what he did is he emphatically endorsed his promise, not that his word would become more true, but that it would become more credible. And if you're taking notes, you may want to put credible in quotes, because I'm using it in the strict etymological sense. There's nothing incredible about God's word to begin with. He makes his word more credible a credo in Latin means to believe. He makes his word more believable. What he's working on then is not the reliability of his word or its veracity. He's working on us. He's making what he says to us more believable. He's giving strong reassurance to us or to Abraham in this particular case. God gives a word that is beyond challenge. It's impossible for God to lie. We know that it's true. But then he takes an oath 
And in so doing, he makes the promise more believable because he emphasizes it. He endorses what he has said. Now the passage that Hebrews quotes here in this paragraph is Genesis 22, verses 16 and 17. I'd like you to turn to that. Terry, would you read that for me? Genesis 22, verses 16 and 17. And while she's looking that up, um, Julie, would you look up Matthew 5.34? So first of all, Genesis 22. Because you have done this, what is it Abraham did? What's that? Well, he did do that. That's not the best part of Abraham's life. Looking at, he also had a child by his wife, whose name was Isaac. That's right. Then God said, "Sacrifice your only son." The Bible does not show us Abraham sitting around in existential paralysis, brooding about this. He obeys God. I have to be very honest with you. I don't believe for a moment that's what I would have done. I'm sure that I would have had to think this through. I, if I want to flatter myself, I'd like to believe that I would go ahead and obey. But you see, God had promised an old man with a barren wife, a child. That's impossible. But they had the child. And then God said, kill him. You really believe that everything relies on me? That I'm sovereign? I can take care of this? I'll keep my promise? You believe that, Abraham? And kill the child. The one and only son of promise that you have. Take him away. I'm glad you raised that question, Terry. Turn to verse 19 of Hebrews 11. Keep your finger in our place here in Hebrews 6. But Hebrews 11, verse 19. Willie, would you read that for us? 11, Yeah, it starts from verse 17 to set it in context. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. What Hebrews 11 says, that Abraham obeyed God, believing him so thoroughly that he said, well, if God has to raise him from the dead, God can raise the dead. I'll do what he says. This is the one that was his only son, his only begotten son. Of course, we're supposed to be having something go through our mind. Didn't God sacrifice his only begotten son and raise him from the dead? Author of Hebrews says Abraham had resurrection faith years before Christ. That Isaac was a type of Christ. And Abraham believed God's promise so thoroughly that when God said, kill him, he was willing to do it because he expected, well, if God has to, he'll raise the dead that he'll keep his promise. That is faith. 
Um, so the passage in Genesis 22 gives us the occasion of Abraham offering up Isaac in obedience to God. Um, and as 11.19 in Hebrews shows us, Abraham unbounded faith believed even in the resurrection. And God responds in Genesis 22 with special emphasis given to assurance. He says, surely I will bless you. Actually, you need to know the Hebrew here to appreciate it. The Hebrew says, in blessing, I will bless you. That's idiomatic. In the Semitic language, when you put a gerund phrase with the key verb, that's a way of emphasizing it. Absolutely. In blessing I will bless you means surely I will bless you. Because look what you have done. Matthew uh, 5.34, I had you look up. Let me just explain. Uh, this is parenthetical. We are sometimes told by Anabaptists that we should never take an oath. What does Matthew 5.34 say? This is their background. Jesus says, don't swear at all. Anabaptists taking that passage, I think, out of context and misapplying it, say we should never take an oath. So if you go into a court of law, a strict Anabaptist will not take an oath. We had an Anabaptist who was tried by our session who refused to take an oath. By the way, and later admitted that he had perjured himself in his own trial, which is a real indictment of the Anabaptist hypocrisy about not taking oath, it seems to me. Because, you see, the idea is you don't have to take an oath because your word is, you know, you can count on your word without an oath. Jesus says, don't swear at all. Plus, he also says, pluck out your eye and cut off your hand and so forth. You need to read that in context. And in the social context of that day, people were taking oath over the most trivial things to back up their words. And so, just in passing conversation, they say to me, I swear to it. So Jesus says, your speech ought to be such that you don't have to keep backing it up with, I swear to it, I swear to it. And so he says, swear not at all. But at Jesus' trial, he took an oath, as he was required to do. And what I want to point out here, Hebrews shows us that God takes an oath. It is not ungodly to take an oath. It is not wrong to take an oath in the appropriate circumstances. Frivolous oath, they're out. Make your word so reliable that an ordinary discourse you don't have to. But in a court of law and other serious circumstances like that, an oath is acceptable. So in those uh, parentheses, back to our text here. Um, I want to ask you, before we get on to verse 16, do we have anything as Christians that is parallel to the oath God gave to Abraham backing up his word? Please turn tape at this time. That is, is there anything in our experience that functions in the same way as the seal upon God's word by which it becomes more credible, more credoable, more believable to us? <laughs> Well, he promises us salvation, and we believe that. We have faith in his promises. But then does God back up his promise with an oath in any way to us? Jim, you're shaking your head vigorously. How? That's right, in the Lord's table, and also in baptism. In the sacraments, God gives a seal 
of the promise that he makes verbally. And if you want to understand the importance of the sacraments, especially in a Reformed understanding, this passage of Scripture is the analog, is the background or parallel that you want to look at. God took an oath and added that to his word. God has added to his word, in our case, the sacrament to seal the promise that he has made to us. And so we learn that through patient endurance, Abraham obtained the promise. The readers of this epistle needed the same patient endurance since the promise, God's promise to them, seemed so remote at a time of persecution. Okay, verse 16. The author says, For men swear by the greater, and in every dispute of theirs the oath is final for confirmation, wherein God, being minded to show more abundantly unto the heirs of the promise the immutability of his counsel, interposed with an oath that by two immutable things in which it's impossible for God to lie, we may have strong encouragement to have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. And there's something strange here. The author of Hebrews has been talking about God doing something for the sake of Abraham. But now when we read, beginning at verse 16, especially in verse 17, we read, wherein God, being minded to show more abundantly unto the heirs of the promise, the immutability of counsel. He doesn't say to show more abundantly unto Abraham. That's not a slip of the pen. That's very purposeful. Who was God showing more abundantly the immutability of his promise when he did take a vow to Abraham, when he took an oath? What is the verse say? Who is he doing that for? For the heirs of salvation. He did that for us. And if you don't put yourself in Abraham's position when you read that story, you're not appreciating it properly. Because Hebrews tells us that God was showing more abundantly unto the heirs of the promise, plural, the immutability of his counsel. He was doing that for our sake, too. He wanted to show more convincingly the unchangeable character, the immutability, the unchangeable character of his purpose. And so he adds an oath to the promise. And that isn't simply for the sake of Abraham. It was for the sake of Abraham's children as well. And we're going to look up some verses real quickly here. Uh, Paul of Galatians 3, verse 29. Uh, Kathy, Hebrews 1.14. Ray, Romans 8.17. Doug, Psalm 110, verse 4. Um, let me see, where are we? Jim, I haven't given you one yet. Uh, Proverbs 19.21, Stacy, uh, Psalm 89.34, Glenn, James 1.17, Pat, uh, Malachi 3.6, and uh, I'm sorry, Al, but we run out. <laughs> to get you next time around. Okay. God wanted to show to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose. Galatians 3.29. It's almost like somebody's been reading 
or the Holy Spirit inspired both. I don't know. It could be both of those things. But heirs according to the promise, those who are children of Abraham by faith. If we belong to Christ, we are Abraham's offspring and heirs according to the promise. So for those of us who belong to Christ, for Christians, God interposed an oath when he did this with Abraham. This is one of the themes of the book of Hebrews, by the way, that salvation is inherited. It's something that comes to us. We are heirs of salvation. It's not simply a gift handed over to anybody, but it's something that we have in a covenantal arrangement inherited. Hebrews 1.14. Inherit salvation. What's the difference between a rich man giving you a million dollars and you being the rich man's son? You see, there's a lot more assurance about being the rich man's son because you're in the will. I mean, you can be written out of the will if you're a bad boy, I realize, but the point is we are children of God. And salvation, therefore, is not simply a gift handed out over the counter, arbitrarily, as it were. We inherit it as family members. It's that secure. Romans 8, 17. And as children, heirs also, heirs of God, and so heirs of Christ. If indeed we suffer with him, in order that we may also be, be glorified with him. If we are children of God, then that means we must be heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. What Christ has inherited by his resurrection will be ours. So Hebrews is talking about the heirs of salvation, and it says, For our sake God was minded to show more abundantly the immutability of his counsel, the unchangeable character of his purpose. The word immutability is a beautiful word. I know it's a mouthful, but uh, it's something you should learn. Tell people, God's unchangeable. God is immutable. And I, I have some passages we're going to look at real quickly so we don't run out of time here. Psalm 110, verse 4. When God swears, he does not repent. God does not go back on his word. Proverbs 19:21. The counsel of the Lord shall stand. When God purposes to do something, it's going to be done. There's no question about it. It shall stand. Not the, not the devices of men. You know, we purpose to do things, and we go back on our word, or we let something get in the way, or we disprove because the circumstances are beyond our control not to be able to do it. Never with God. His purposes shall always stand. Psalm 89.34 God says, when I make covenant, when I make an oath, I won't go back on it. My lips say it. My word is my bond. Bond here in the sake of covenant. When God says it, it's not going to change. James 1.17 gives us the reason why God's word, promise, and purpose will never change. God doesn't shift like the shadow on a sundial. He doesn't move at all. That's why you can count on his word and his purposes. Malachi 3.6 
The reason why you don't suffer for your sins is because I promised to save you, and I don't go back on my promises. Isn't that great? I'll tell you. God has guaranteed the irrevocability of his purpose by two irrevocable things. His word of promise and his confirmatory oath, both of which tell you it's impossible that God should prove false, that God should ever lie. Now, the author of Hebrews tells us that this is strong encouragement to us. Now, somehow I don't think we needed to be told that. Isn't that strong encouragement that God makes a promise and backs it up? That by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we may have strong encouragement who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. This strong encouragement should lead us to seize the hope that is set before us, the goal of our faith. God has set salvation up before us, and now we should strive all the more to lay hold of it because we know God will not fail. God's promise is true. God has backed it up with an oath. And so, if I can put it in theological jargon, the reassurance of preservation proves to be an incentive to perseverance. Let me say that again. The reassurance about preservation. You will be saved if you belong to God because he's promised it and he backs it up with an oath. That word about being preserved proves to be an incentive to persevere like an athlete pressing on to the goal. And then I want to pause for a moment to reflect on this description of the uh, Christian profession at the end of verse 18, we may have strong encouragement who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. We are those who have done what? We fled for refuge. I really hope that um, no matter how far down the line you get in your theological sophistication, and your knowledge about the scriptures and the system of doctrine set forth in them. But, but you don't lose sight of that, that in the end, Christianity is a matter of fleeing for refuge. And I'm not an existentialist, and pardon my bringing that up a couple times tonight, but you see, there's something very existential about that. Remember, Christianity is not just a set of premises and doctrines. Christianity is an experience of fleeing for refuge. In Luke 3, 7, John the Baptist spoke of fleeing from the wrath to come. There is a day, a great and horrible conflagration is coming when the wrath of God will be poured out against this world. We need to flee from that day, to flee from the wrath to come, to flee for refuge. I'm told that one of the favorite metaphors used by R.B. Kuyper, who's a grand Calvinist preacher in this century, was that of a man who was fleeing from his enemies across an open field and, and having no hope that he'll be able to outrun them, sees finally what appears to be a little shaft across the meadow and just barely stays ahead of the hounds and the guns and so forth and the people pursuing him and gets inside and closes the door and locks it 
And then, of course, you know, his heart's just beating a mile a minute and he's catching his breath and, and hoping that this place will be able to, to take care of him. And then as he, he catches his breath and looks around him, he says, this, is, this wasn't just a shaft across the meadow. This place is like a, like a bomb shaft. And it's got reinforced concrete walls. It's got steel bars across the door. There's absolutely no way anybody can get through. He had fled for refuge to a place. And at the time of his fleeing, he didn't worry about engineering feats of how to put steel bars and doors and concrete walls and so forth. He was looking for anything that would save him. But once he found that salvation, he began to reflect on it. Then he began to appreciate what he had. Isn't that like our experience? When you became a Christian, you probably didn't understand the doctrines of Calvinism and preservation and what saved, always saved, and the sovereignty of God. You didn't know that God had interposed with an oath and so forth. You were just looking for any shelter in the storm of God's wrath. But now that you're in that shelter and you take time to reflect on it, look at what God has done. He's backed up his own word with an oath. He is sovereign. There is nothing greater or more powerful than him. Our salvation is absolutely secure. Well, remember that. Christianity is fleeing for refuge. Then verse 19, This refuge we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, entering into that which is within the veil. Whither as a forerunner Jesus entered for us, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Christian hope is so secure that it can be described as sure and steadfast, an anchor that is sure and steadfast, an anchor of the soul. Now remember, please, that soul, as it's used in the Bible, does not refer, in a, in a real specific way, or ever um, in a narrow way, to man's um, ghostly characteristics like a ghost that goes to heaven and he dies. The soul is man's life, man's personality. It is the immaterial aspect of you, um, but it doesn't leave out your body. Um, we read in the Old Testament that a lion tears a man's soul. Well, and understood platonically, a lion couldn't even touch a man's soul. The soul is the life. Now, it's an embodied life, and right now before you die but the soul refers to the person and we have a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul a personal security against uh, the tides and the storms of life by the way the anchor was early on a symbol for the Christian hope we tend to think only of the fish because that's been popularized in our day but an anchor was also one of the early symbols used by Christians uh, perhaps tied to this verse, I don't know. Maybe this verse arose out of that, I, I can't be sure. But the idea is that we have an anchor of the soul that's sure and steadfast. But this anchor, I love this, this anchor does not sink to the bottom of the sea. This anchor rises up to heaven. And when this anchor of the soul rises up into heaven, we have a confidence that goes right into heaven. And where does it go in heaven? Answer my question. Where does it go? Where does this anchor lead in heaven? Into where? 
inside the veil. This is the reference to the Holy of Holies. You mustn't forget, and we're going to see this later in the book of Hebrews, that the earthly tabernacle and temple was not the reality. It was the shadow. The reality was in heaven. And the reality of God's throne room was shadowed or reflected on earth in the earthly tabernacle. And in that earthly tabernacle, God resided in the Holy of Holies, above the mercy seat, between the cherubim at the Ark of the Covenant. And because that was the holy presence of God among his people, and no man can come into the presence of God without dying for his sins, the Holy of Holies was shrouded in a veil. And this veil was a very thick veil. In fact, if you remember my sermon on the day that Christ died, the veil probably had grown to be six to nine inches thick because every time they re-embroidered, they just left the old one there and added more depth to it. What happened when Christ died? It was tore from the top to the bottom as a way of saying, you have been in the old covenant kept from the very presence of God that Christ, through his death, brings you into the very presence of God. You no longer need fear because of your sin coming into God's presence. Now you can draw close to God. The inner shrine behind the curtain, then, obviously, is the Holy of Holies, that sacred innermost chamber of the tabernacle or the temple. And because Jesus, our Savior, has entered into that place, our hope of salvation is grounded in his work. Stop and think about this. Aaron and the priest, the high priest that followed Aaron, were not forerunners for the people, were they? Aaron didn't show the people, here's how you go into the Holy of Holies. No, in the Old Covenant, Aaron entered in, or the high priest in that year entered in, and that only once a year. And then only with the blood of atonement. The Jews were so frightened of the Holy of Holies that things would be done wrong there. They used to tie a rope around the ankle of the high priest when he went in and the rope would dangle out behind so that if he never returned, because he died in the presence of God, they'd be able to pull the corpse out without going in to get it. Aaron was not a forerunner to go into the Holy of Holies. But what does Hebrews say? Whither as a forerunner Jesus entered for us. When Jesus went into the Holy of Holies, he opened up the veil so that we could follow him into the Holy of Holies. We could follow him into the very presence of God. Once God's people were excluded, now God's people approach the presence of God, and not just approach it, approach it with full assurance. An anchor of the soul, sure and steadfast, that goes within the veil. Isn't that a beautiful image? The book of Hebrews uses this two other uh, places, and if you'll just give me a minute here, I'd like to look at it before we quit. Hebrews 4.16. Let us therefore draw near with boldness unto the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. We draw near boldly to the very throne of God's grace. Old Covenant people couldn't do that. We can because Jesus has gone in for us. And then Hebrews 10, 19. 
having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the way which he dedicated for us, a new and living way, through the veil, that is, his flesh, and having a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and fullness of faith, full assurance, full confidence, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our body washed with pure water. Okay, so the book of Hebrews sees real significance in that. Jesus entered into a holy place for us as a forerunner. And what Jesus says is, since I have gone before you, you can follow me. You come to the throne of grace too. And don't come wavering and whimpering and scared. Come with full assurance of faith. Come with boldness and pray now in the very presence of God. Another important theological point. Notice that verse 20 says that the one who went in was Jesus. He doesn't say it was Christ. It was Jesus who went in. I say, well, what's the difference, Pastor? Modern theologians, this has been a popular sport in modern theology, to distinguish between the historical Jesus and the theological Christ. Jesus was the man who lived in history. Christ is this ideal figure that was embodied by Jesus, illustrated by Jesus, but is something of a theological construct. When Jesus rose from the dead, he became the Christ in modern theology. It's not Jesus who rose from the dead then, it's Christ, or the Christ figure who rises from the dead. The author of Hebrews won't put up with that kind of nonsense at all. He doesn't say Christ entered into heaven for us. He said Jesus did. The very one who walked on earth and ate fish with men and died on a cross, he went into the Holy of Holies. And because he did, we will too. No, no, not two different people. One's a person that lives in history and the other's an ideal. Well, he embodies the Christ. But it's not Jesus, the bones and flesh, that died on the cross that went into God's presence. It was this, this concept, this theological... Wasn't, isn't that reassuring to you? You know that some theological concept entered into heaven for you? Yeah. It's kind of hard. I mean, when you're in a seminary setting, everybody kind of takes this for granted. You know, you talk about Boltzmannian Christology and stuff like that. But it just doesn't float when you try to teach it to the people in the pew. I mean, your reaction is what most people do. If that's what you're saying, this is nonsense. Why bother with Christianity? Okay, but my point is the author of Hebrews doesn't fit into those modern constructs at all. Okay, and one more thing. He says, um, Whither as a forerunner Jesus entered for us, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And now you see, bells should be ringing in your head, you see. You go back to chapter 5, verse 10. Named of God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now, parentheses. Of whom I have many things to say, but you see, you can't understand because all this has gone on. You come all the way down through chapter 6, you get to verse 20. He says, now, back to the order of Melchizedek. We're now back on track. What I'm saying is the end of chapter 5 and all of chapter 6 is one huge footnote or parenthesis. He wanted to talk about Melchizedek, 
But that made him remember, you can't understand these things. And here's why you can't. You have this, pro- this problem that you may be apostatized. However, there's the reassurance of salvation. God made a promise. He backed it up with an oath. Jesus went in, sure and steadfast anchor within the veil. He says that. He says, now, back to Melchizedek. That's what I wanted to talk about. So, um, the next time I have a digression in the sermon, please don't hold that against me. It's just the best <laughs> biblical style of preaching. And on that reminds me, I wanted to say this to you as well. This has been one very long, inspired and important digression. We're now going to get back to that theme of Melchizedek, which we left off long ago. And when we get back together, we'll start chapter 7. Jesus, a high priest, not like the high priest of the Aaronic style, but a high priest after the order of Melchizedek, far superior. Okay, would you like to ask any questions? Right. Well, okay, I think I understand where you're going with that. It is kind of similar to that. You might ask the question, well now, if God failed to do what he promised to do, then cursing himself would mean that God would die, which would mean God would not be God. God would go out of the business of being God. He'd die. But God can't die. Because in him is in him is life. He is the principle of life. He's the creator of life. And so what this turns out to be is a very long way of saying it's impossible for God not to keep his word then. Because if God didn't keep his word, he wouldn't be God. But it's impossible for God not to be God, so it's impossible for him not to keep his word. I used this illustration this summer with Doug, and forgive me if I repeat it. There, in the English language, we have idioms that go something like this. And this is kind of a corny one. I can think of better ones by the time. But I, I'll, I say to you, if this isn't true, or I, I assert something or I promise something, and then I say, or I'll be a monkey's uncle. Now, what is, I mean, we all understand what that's communicating. And yet when you think about it literally, I couldn't ever become a monkey's uncle. So what does that mean, or I'll be a monkey's uncle? What that means is, since I can't be a monkey's uncle, it's impossible for, for this not to be true, for me not to do this. Now, of course, that's probably a little strong for any human being to say. We can't ever have that kind of um, assurance about the truth of our statements or about our promises. But my, my point is, this is what we're intending to communicate when we use such an expression. Likewise, God says, if I don't keep my word to you, I won't be God. I'll die. And you're saying, to God, you can't die. And you say, that's right. So what, do you, what logical conclusion do you draw? I guess I'm going to keep my word. And that's, that's what it amounts to. God takes a self-maledictory oath, and when you analyze that philosophically, that's just a way of saying, since you know I can't die, you know I can't fail to keep my promise either. If we said it, we'd be stepping out on a limb. When he says it, 
there's no insecurity about it at all. That's right. Let me be a monkey's uncle. You know, if I said that, that's a way of backing it up and saying it's just not going to ever happen that I, uh, I'm not uh, accurate about this or I don't keep my promise. Daisy? Well, there are, of course, um, a whole host of varieties of not having assurance of salvation. To try to lump them all together, I think, is probably not sensitive to the kinds of problems people go through. One reason why someone might not have assurance of salvation could be you don't really believe God's Word. In that case, maybe you're not saved. I, I'm not going to even be definite there, but yeah, that is a possibility. In my experience, and I mean me, when I have problems, worrying about my salvation, or when I counsel people to do, it's usually not that they doubt God's word. They believe it. And what they believe is, God has the right to condemn sinners. And I'm such a sinner. How could he save me? And of course, that's not a way of saying, God, you promised that you're a liar. It's a way of saying, can the promise even go so far as to save me? And very sympathetic people go through that. I go through that a lot. And, um, I think the Westminster Confession is correct. Assurance of salvation is not the essence of saving faith. And therefore, though we should strive to have that assurance, and God wants us, obviously He wants us to have it, that's why He gave the oath, that's why we have the sacraments, that's why we take the Lord's Supper every Sunday. So we'll have that assurance. He wants us to have it. He offers it to us. We should strive for it. It's wrong not to have it. But if you don't have it, it doesn't mean you don't have saving faith. Remember the man who said to Jesus, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. We're all in this bag, I'm afraid, and we're still working on that unbelief that afflicts us. And often my unbelief has nothing to do with God's veracity. That's a lot to do with my own, a lack of it. Well, the uh, clock didn't go off, and I went overtime anyway, so I got away with it tonight. Doug, would you close in prayer, please? Father, we do give you great praise to the Lord for your word and your strength to be here with you. We thank you, Lord, that you have made us earth and made us earth by grace and by the Christ. We thank you, Lord, that you did enter into the Holy Spirit and perfected forever your people. We pray, Lord, now that you would strengthen our assurance, Lord, that we might strengthen our knowledge of you and your word. We pray, Lord, that you would protect us as we go our way. Thank you for the time together. Amen. Amen.